Hello, good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the Atlantic Council. And as you probably know from your um, program, this is part of a project that was launched in February called the Middle East Strategy Task Force. My name is Ginny Babdo, and um, the reason that I'm somewhat of an MC tonight is that I'm the convener of one of the working groups on religion, identity, and countering violent extremism. We are very honored this evening to have with us several ambassadors from the Middle East, so we're very honored that you could join us, as well as Frederick Kemp, the president of the Atlantic Council. Um, the public hearing this evening, as I mentioned, is part of the larger project, and the task force is a bipartisan Atlantic Council project, and the whole aim is quite ambitious, but at least the objectives, the underlying objectives, are to try to understand the dynamics behind the crises that we're seeing now in the Middle East, which of course are extremely overwhelming. Um, the task force also emphasizes collaboration with international partners. So the thing that drew me to this project, and I think it's very, it makes it very unique, is that we are trying as much as possible to involve partners in the region, um, other types of scholars in the region, and every working group, which I'll just mention briefly, has participants who are from the region. So we want to have voices from the region. And that's really one of the main primary objectives of the task force. Um, as uh, we have, um, as part of the, um, uh, the whole leadership of the task force is, of course, uh, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley, and we're very honored and we have really enjoyed working with them. Um, they have also invited um, senior advisors to be on the project, and they also are major stakeholders in the Middle East and are of eminent standing in terms of their knowledge and their um, sort of work experience with all of the issues that we're covering. Some of the issues that we are addressing, there are five working groups. One is on security and public order. Um, another is religion, identity, and countering violent extremism, which I chair. Another group is on refugees, recovery, and reconciliation. The, the, the fourth one is politics, governance, and state society relations. And the last one is economic recovery and revitalization. Um, and I think that it's a very good, um, very good cross-section of, of, the, of the very important issues that are now facing Middle East societies. And in the launch that was actually, that occurred here in June, one of the speakers, which I thought was very insightful, said that we need to, we need to look at the Middle East in all its dimensions. That, you know, people in the region don't wake up hating Israel and go to bed hating the United States. And so I think that the attempt of this very ambitious project is to to look at and to address a lot of aspects of what is driving crises in the Middle East, including socioeconomic issues. Um, in the deliberations in the working group on, that I chair on religion, identity, and counter-violent extremism, we are trying to address the, the issue of does religion matter and is religion relevant, which is the subject of today's conversation. And I think that so far, the participants in this group who do come from the region they have, I think that we've made a lot of progress, certainly than we have since 9-11, in acknowledging that it does have something to do with religion, whether or not it's the more conventional interpretations of religion, but that it does have something to do with religion. It also has something to do with religion because uh, identity politics, religion is, is driving identity politics. Religion is also driving the kind of Shia-Sunni relations that we're seeing in many countries today. Um, 
in the Middle East, uh, some of the other issues that we're focusing on in the religion uh, working group, which will be addressed here tonight, is um, not only the differences in religious interpretation, but also um, the whole challenge of trying to deal now with non-state actors and with societies that don't necessarily um, uh, respect or follow state-sanctioned religious authority. So in many countries in the Middle East, there are institutions, there are state-sanctioned religious scholars, and we've seen post-Arab uprisings that societies now have, to some degree, they, that they've discredited what was state authority, and that's a very big challenge. So how do we reach, one question we're grappling with, how do we reach the people in the middle, the people who are not part of state-sanctioned religion, but you can't really place them in categories or identify them? Um, they don't fall in neat categories. Well, we're not necessarily talking about jihadists. We're talking about maybe nonviolent Salafists, other people that now are very nebulous in terms of their ideologies, in terms of their own organizations, and it's very difficult how to reach them. Um, the, as a cleric recently told me in Lebanon, he said, the problem that we face today is that the moderates are being overshadowed by the extremists. And I think this is true on both the Sunni and the Shia side. And so he asked, can there be some way to, to create platforms for moderates so that our voices can at least compete with um, extremists such as ISIS? And this is another issue that we're trying to examine in the working group is how can outsiders, how can NGOs, governments both in the West and the, and the Middle East try to create these platforms for um, people who are not, who are trying to counter the extremist narrative? Um, with this, I will um, end my remarks and hand over the podium to Secretary uh, of State Albright. She needs no introduction, obviously, but she is the chair of the Albright Stone Ridge Group and a member of the Atlantic Council's Board of Director. She was the 64th Secretary of State in the United States. In, 19, in 2012, she received the prestigious Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor from President Barack Obama. In 1997, she was named the first female Secretary of State, um, and, and, and at that time, she was the highest ranking woman in the history of the US government. She is also the author, which makes her knowledge on this project and particularly her, her insight that she's offering our, our project and our working group. She is the author of The Mighty and the Almighty, which is a very interesting book about the role of religion, and she was quite ahead of her time. The book was published in 2007. She was quite ahead of her time in understanding the role of religion in public diplomacy, the role of religion in policy formation, and now that we are four years from the Arab uprisings, we are even more convinced that we need to focus on religion um, as well as politics in trying to understand the policies of the Middle East and, and trying to sort of understand how to, to meet the challenges that governments face today. So Secretary of Albright, I invite you to the podium. Thank you very much. Jeanine, thank you very much uh, for your introduction. And I just would like to say that Steve Hadley and I are truly grateful to have so many top-notch people uh, involved in this uh, effort and helping to steer our five working groups. Today's discussion, as Jeanine mentioned, 
will explore her working group's area of focus. And we have a truly interesting group of panelists and a number of distinguished guests in this audience who will want to engage on the subject, so, so I will be brief. I'm also keenly aware that many members of this audience are fasting, and I uh, do hope that you will join us for an iftar reception following this event. But as we wait for the sun to set, I thought it would be worth sharing my perspective on this evening's topic. I do so as someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about the relationship between religion and international affairs. And as Janine mentioned, I even wrote a book about the subject. The book grew out of a realization I had as Secretary of State when it became obvious to me that for a variety of reasons, we had not been according religion as much weight as it deserved in the foreign policy discussion, and partially because the United States believes in a separation of church and state. The fact is that world events are influenced by people acting out of faith, passion, and a sense of who they are and where they fit. We saw this in Iran in the late 1970s, in Poland in the 1980s, in the Balkans in the 1990s, and I would argue we see it in the Middle East today. So to understand why others act as they do, and to persuade others to act as we would wish, policymakers in the United States and elsewhere need to take religion into account. The question is how to do this without creating new problems. And it's a challenge that a friend of mine has compared to brain surgery, necessary to do, but disastrous if you slip up. A steady hand is needed, but so is a base of knowledge and expertise. Um, and I do think that as we think about that, it's an important message. When I was Secretary of State, I had an entire bureau of economists I could turn to and a cadre of experts on nonproliferation and arms control whose technical jargon earned them a nickname, the priesthood. But with the notable exception of Ambassador Bob Seipel, I didn't have a similar expertise available for integrating knowledge of religion into our efforts at diplomacy. And we had no Muslims serving in senior positions uh, and just a few in mid-level jobs. So, so to address the problem, we did take some steps to increase our outreach and links to communities of faith particularly in the Islamic world. We reviewed everything from personnel recruitment and training to the listing of Islamic holidays alongside Jewish and Christian ones on our official calendar. We began a series of discussions with representatives of American Muslims, inviting them during Ramadan to the first iftar dinners hosted by a Secretary of State. And we developed an introductory guide to Islam to be available to persons traveling on behalf of the United States to countries that had a Muslim majority. But clearly, this, this was just a start. But I'm pleased to see that both the Bush administration and the Obama administration made religious outreach a priority. And I'm particularly delighted that tonight, we are joined by a number of officials from the State Department's recently expanded Office of Religion and Global Affairs. Building this base of knowledge is important because during the Cold War, our greatest fear was that someone with his finger on the nuclear button would miscalculate and trigger what technocrats bloodlessly referred to as a nuclear exchange. Today, perhaps our worst nightmare is that religion will ignite fears and conflicts that we will be unable to contain. Nowhere is this risk greater than in the Middle East 
where the people of the region are looking for answers on how to deal with the threat posed by extremists who, acting in the name of God, try to impose their will on others. We know that the nature of these religious and sectarian conflicts extend back to ancient times, but what is new is the extent of damage that violence can inflict. It is easy to blame religion, or more precisely, what some people do in the name of religion, for all these troubles, but frankly, that's too simple. Religion is a powerful force whose impact depends entirely on what it inspires people to do. And the challenge for those in the region is to harness the unifying potential of faith while containing its capacity to divide. And that, I hope, will figure into our discussion this evening. So I'd close by, recall, by recalling what Archbishop Tutu once said. Religion is like a knife. It may be used to slice bread or stab your neighbor in the back, but it cannot be ignored. Both the Bible and the Quran include enough rhetorical ammunition to start a war and enough moral uplift to engender permanent peace. The determining factor is less what the words say than the message we choose to hear. So with that, let me thank you all once again for being here this evening, and I hope we have a good discussion. And let me now invite the panelists to the stage, and then, Geneve, you will come back and get us started. Please come up to the stage. took your podium. My voice is pretty loud, so So to start off our discussion, I will just briefly introduce um, the panelists. Um, the Honorable Stephen Hadley, of course, he was former U.S. Uh, National Security Advisor. He is also the founding partner of, Rich, uh, of Rice Hadley Gates LLC and serves on the board of director of the Atlantic Council. He completed four years as the assistant to the president for national security affairs on January 2009. And I want to say from our previous um, activities, he's a very disciplined moderator. So, <laughs> so he doesn't allow people to get out of line. Um, we also have, so Secretary Albright has already been introduced. We also have um, Alberto Fernandez, who is the Vice President of the Middle East Media Research Institute, a member of the Board of Directors of the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University, and a member of the Public Diplomacy Council. He served as U.S. Department of State's Coordinator for the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications from March 2012 to February 2015. Um, Next, we have, I'll introduce Haidar. <laughs> we also have, um, fortunately, a speaker who is actually in Tehran now. So he will be speaking to us via Skype. Tehran? Correct, yes. So he'll be speaking to us via Skype. We hope, we hope so. <laughs> I think there could be some glitches with the technology. There we have it. He has him. Great. Okay. Hi, Haidar. <laughs> so I didn't know you were up there. Um, so he, Haidar El Koi, is an associate fellow in the Middle East and the North Africa program at Chatham House. He is also a doctoral student at the London School of Economics and a fellow at Forward Leaning, a London-based nonprofit fo uh, focused on the Middle East. He previously conducted research at the Center for Academic Shia Studies from 2010 to 2014, and he's also. Uh, comes from a very prominent clerical family. Um, Neha Sagal. 
is um, a senior researcher at the Pew Research Center, specializing in international polling, particularly on topics related to interreligious relations and political Islam. She is involved in all aspects of survey research, including designing the questionnaire, monitoring field work, and evaluating data quality. And she's going to tell us, uh, give us some uh, overview of some of her polling. And I can just assure you that it's it's very it's quite interesting, particularly um, as it regards Shia-Sunni relations, as it regards um, attitudes among different sects in the Middle East. And we also have Imam Mashid, who is um, the Imam at the Dulles Mosque, and was the former president of the Islamic Society of North America. So as you can see, we have a very prestigious panel, and I'll welcome them to start the discussion. Thank you. And we're going to begin. We've, uh, we've got, we have a smaller audience by design. We want this to be a fairly frank and intimate conversation. We are going to have presentations from our four presenters. We're then going to have a, about a half hour, depending on the time of conversation among us here, and then about a half hour of time for questions from the audience. And if we get short of time, we will shorten the conversation here and keep a good 30 minutes uh, for the audience. And we will and sharply, I've been told, at 8.30. Uh, so that's, that's the plan. And uh, why don't we begin? And I think, Neha, you're our first speaker. Uh, if you all don't mind, I, I can stand so I can see the slides and point Good. out things Good. as I go along. Let me just get the clicker right here. I'm Neha Segal. Thank you all for coming. Uh, today I'm going to talk a little bit about some of our polling among Muslim publics in the Middle East and beyond. I'm from the Pew Research Center. So just a quick introduction to the Pew Research Center. We are a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization. We do not make policy recommendations. Uh, and I will stay very close to the data and give you exactly what the data says and then allow you to take that um, as you please. I'll offer some hypotheses, et cetera, as we go along uh, in the discussion period as well. But at the Pew Research Center, we have three projects that are really focused on international affairs, the first being the Religion and Public Life Project, where I work. Uh, we try to understand the intersection between uh, religion social views, political views, et cetera. Uh, some of our studies have been on uh, global restrictions of religion and, of course, attitudes among uh, Muslims around the world. Uh, the Global Attitudes Project focus, focuses on geostrategic issues and views of the United States. I'm going to pull some data uh, from the Global Attitudes Project from my talk today as well. And then the Center for the People and the, and the Press talks about U.S. public attitudes uh, towards international issues, among other, um, among other issues, including, uh, of course, uh, presidential favorability and who we are voting for uh, in the election. So that's just a kind of a quick introduction uh, to the Pew Research Center and who we are. Today I'm going to talk about a couple different issues. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about extremism and interfaith relations. Uh, and here I'll talk about Muslim views towards Christianity and Christians. Uh, and I'm going to talk about some of the driving factors uh, when it comes to views on extremism, in particular about suicide bombing. Uh, I'm also going to talk a little bit about sectarianism and talk about differences between Sunni and, uh, Sunnis and Shia uh, as far as political opinions are concerned. And then I'm going to talk about Sunnis' views of Shia uh, and issues concerning uh, tolerance in that realm. All along, the idea is to kind of draw some conclusions about what we can say from the data about the social bases of extremism uh, and sectarianism. What are the driving factors? Okay, so let's begin with interfaith relations. In our survey conducted in 2012 in Muslim countries around the world, one question we asked was, how much do you know about Christianity? And here in this bar chart, I'm showing you percent of Muslims who say they know a great deal, or at least something, about Christianity. Uh, 
there's a lot of data here, but I think a pattern is immediately very clear. Uh, there's a regional pattern here. In Sub-Saharan Africa, at the bottom, we see higher levels of knowledge about Christianity uh, among Muslims. Another country that seems to pop out is Bosnia. Higher levels of, um, of admitted knowledge about Christianity among Muslims. So it seems that in countries where there are mixed populations, more diverse populations, Muslims and Christians both, there seems to be greater knowledge. Another question we asked in this survey was, do you think that Islam and Christianity are very different religions? Or do you think they have a lot in common? And to me, what's interesting about this slide is it almost looks like an image of the first slide. It's the same pattern. In sub-Saharan Africa, we see higher levels uh, of people saying that Islam and Christianity are actually very similar religions. Right? Similarly, Bosnia seems to stand out. Okay? So again, countries where the populations are mixed, uh, people seem to have more knowledge, and they also seem to admit that Islam and Christianity share common ground. Okay? So there seems to be a relationship here. Is there one? Yes, there is. Uh, among Muslims who say they know a great deal, or at least something about Christianity, there's a, a higher admittance of the fact that the two religions actually share common ground. Right? And, the, and the gaps are actually quite big uh, as compared to those who say they know not very much or nothing at all. So knowledge seems to be correlated uh, with views of common ground. And of course, in this, this, is, this particular um, uh, table here is actually just a, you know, just a cross tab. So we don't know if other factors may be driving this. So just to be sure, I conducted um, a more kind of sophisticated uh, statistical analysis called regression, where I can control for several other factors, including demographics um, you know, and various other things. And I actually find that even when you control for other factors, knowledge seems to be still related uh, to views of common ground. Right? And in, particularly, even if when people participate in interfaith dialogue, they seem to have a greater sense that Islam and Christianity actually share some things in common. Okay. All right, let's talk about extremism. Okay, what are some of the driving factors here? First of all, one question we ask in um, several countries around the world is on suicide bombings. Uh, and here I'm showing you the percent of Muslims who say suicide bombing and other forms of violence against civilian targets can be often justified or sometimes justified. Okay. There are a lot of different lines here. They're doing many different things over the years, but there's a very clear overall pattern. And that is that support for suicide bombing, or at least saying that suicide bombing can be justified, is showing a downward tick in pretty much every country. We go pretty clear, you know, kind of average line down the middle, and it's heading down. Okay? Still, we see high levels of support for suicide bombing in the Palestinian territories, in Lebanon, in Egypt. So what is going on here? What are the driving factors? And how is religion involved? So to try and understand the role of religion better, I looked at a variable that, that I called, that I used to measure religious commitment. And that is, how often do you pray? Right? If you pray five times a day, high levels of religious commitment. You pray less, and then we say that you have lower levels of religious commitment. Uh, and so here I'm showing you views about suicide bombing among those who pray five times a day and those who pray less. And here I only showed, uh, put together the Middle Eastern countries, but actually if I included some other countries as well, the pattern wouldn't be all that different. And that is that in most countries, pretty much the majority, vast majority of the countries, we don't see a relationship between religious commitment and support for suicide bombing. In two places, this is not true, and that's Palestinian territories and Lebanon. Right. Lebanon, the cross-tabulation showed some relationship, but it wasn't quite clear to me. It was not quite statistically significant, so I wanted to look at it a bit more. But in Palestinian territories, the relationship was actually quite clear. Right. So now, is this religion or is this some other factor? 
Okay. To try and understand this, I did some additional analysis. Again, I did um, what is called a regression analysis, and I'll, this time I'll actually show you uh, the results of the, of the analysis, of the regression analysis. All right, so here what I do is I control for several factors, okay, including demographics, education. Uh, I didn't show education here, it was not significant. Several other factors. What's going on in the Palestinian territories? Religion seems to play a role. Okay. Here, those who pray five times a day are 17 percentage points more likely to say suicide bombing can be often or sometimes justified, all else being equal, all other factors being controlled for. However, it is not so, quite so simple as that, and the story doesn't end there. Right? There are other factors that seem to be playing a role as well, including having an unfavorable view of the United States and being male. Right? So demographics seem to be having an influence as well. Lebanon. Religion is important, but it's not what you think it is. It seems to be driven by religious identity. Right? Shia are 16 percentage points more likely to say that uh, suicide bombing against civilian targets can be often or sometimes justified compared to everybody else, all else being equal. Okay? But religion, religious commitment is, plays a role as well. Okay? So it seems to be driven by religious identity, and religion seems to also be mitigated by political views and demographics. Right? All of those factors seem to play a role in both of these countries. So I've talked a little bit about sectarianism already in Lebanon, and that's a good way into looking more deeply into Lebanon about the views of Sunnis and the views of Shia. What we find in Lebanon, this is not going to be a surprise at this point, is the political views of the two groups are in fact quite different. And when it comes to suicide bombing, again, Shia are more likely to say that this can be justified uh, than Sunnis. This difference extends to other, uh, other issues as well, particularly when you look at views of Hamas and the views of Hezbollah, where Shia and Sunni express very different views of these groups. Right? Among Sunnis, uh, views of Hamas are much more unfavorable. Among Shias, and the, um, the uh, graphic here to the right is extremely interesting to me because it's almost a mirror image. Right? Views of Hezbollah are uh, much more favorable among Shia than they are among Sunnis. Okay? And this difference extends to views of the United States as well. Right? where we find that among Shia, views of the United States are considerably more unfavorable uh, and lean more in the negative direction compared to Sunnis. All right, so what does all this mean for views of Sunnis towards Shias? Okay. Interestingly enough, I showed you a lot of political polarization, always a difficult word to say, in Lebanon. But when we ask Sunnis, do you consider Shia to be Muslim? we find a very interesting result. Two countries, Iraq and Lebanon, count among the highest proportion of Sunnis saying that Shia are in fact Muslim. Here, I kind of put together all the countries where Sunnis, the percent of Sunnis saying that Shia are Muslim is among the highest, right? Among all the countries where we ask this question, about 25 countries or so, okay? Notice that Iraq and Lebanon are the only Middle Eastern countries. The other countries are Tajikistan, Albania, Azerbaijan, Asia, Central Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia. Okay. So where are the Middle Eastern countries? Well, they're on another table, where Sunni saying that Shia are in fact Muslim is among the lowest. Considerably fewer people in Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, Jordan say that Shia are in fact Muslim. The one country here that's not Middle Eastern is, of course, Indonesia where, interestingly enough, about a third of Muslims also said that they can't say or they don't really know. Okay. 
Finally, I'll show you another geographic pattern. It's quite interesting. You've already seen that outside the Middle East, there seems to be greater acceptance um, of Shia. But we also see this. Okay. In these countries, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, Kosovo, mostly sort of Eastern European, Central Asian countries, and of course, one Southeast Asian country, actually people tell us that they can't say either way because they've never heard of these groups. So this is also borne out in the fact that when we ask people, are you Sunni, are you Shia, or are you something else, they say, what's that? I'll end with that. Thank you. Some Thank terrific you. data. Uh, we will have an opportunity to try to figure out what to make of that data from a policy standpoint. Um, thank you for that. Next, uh, Imam Majid. Um, thank you very much for inviting me to this part of this panel. I would like just to respond to the, to the data that I have just Good. heard. I would like to say there's a relationship between freedom and the reaction that you see now in the Middle East. Um, especially when you're talking about the relationship between the majority-minority relationship or the right expression of it of the citizens of the country who are not Muslims. Uh, because they are not minority, they are really the citizens of the country. Therefore, it, it is the, what happened in, in those countries about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, you know, regarding relationship between the Christians and, and, and Muslims. Uh, I would like to say that this was missing here is the, the good examples and models that you see also in Senegal, for example, and Sierra Leone, where in Senegal, you have the Catholic and the Muslims. They share the holidays. And the Catholic being fed on the holidays of Muslims, a lot of lamb and meat and the, the, uh, the Muslims have been fed all the cookies and so forth during Christmas time. And there's an intermarriage relationship in the same families. Um, if what it seemed to me where there's more tension, political tension, that relationship also get impacted. And where also there is no enough freedom for all the segments of the society, you have that reflected in the relationship between the citizen of the country, Muslim versus uh, Christian and the others. Um, I would like to say that um, the, uh, the examples of Iraq, for example, uh, if you ask the Iraqis, was members of my communities, uh, uh, many of them are from Iraq, uh, the relationship was an awesome relationship before the falling of uh, all Saddam Hussein and the collapse of the system and the government in Iraq. There was a relationship, maybe the government have, uh, you know, discrimination maybe, but Tariq Aziz was, was uh, by the way, there's no, in no way I'm endorsing Saddam Hussein. I'm just talking about the, the reality on the ground of the relationship of Christians and Muslims in Iraq uh, and what happened after that uh, in, in, in the collapse of the government and the, uh, and the state. Uh, Yazidis, I was living there for a long time and the Christians living there for a long time. Uh, and the Iraqi Muslims and, and, and uh, the Christians, they have good relationship. Therefore, I would like just to put things in perspective, if I may, uh, in, in those relationships. <coughs> um, the, in the relationship of, of uh, being religious and being extremist, 
uh, of course, I'm so glad that the data say there's no really relationship between praying five times a day and uh, you know commit suicide, bombing, and so forth. Because many people associate religiosity with extremism. You may have someone very devoted Muslim but does not believe in violence extremism. And a person might also, you have a woman might wearing niqab. That doesn't mean her view of others are always is covered in her face, I mean, as that <coughs> negative. Uh, if we might disagree with how the person practices Islam, but does that make them really being uh, not tolerant, uh, not tolerance toward others and, and, and accepting others? Uh, that is. Um, uh, something very important, I think, in this uh, discourse. By the way, my personal views on those issues and how I practice Islam, it might differ from the person wearing, covering their face and so on. But I would like just to be fair in, in the discussions here then, is religiosity has something to do with extremism. Um, also, I would like to say that regarding interfaith and interfaith, Muslims Americans realize that uh, it is very important for us to address this issue of Shia Sunni conflict by creating our own platform in America. And we created a committee from the Shia and Sunni uh, communities uh, to address this issue because we see the rhetoric uh, online, online and YouTube and so forth, really very dangerous discourse. But we created a declaration, DC declaration, where we brought, we brought the Sunni scholars and Shia scholars, and we uh, uh, signed a court of uh, honor, honor and a declaration of building understanding between both communities. But we realized that that is not enough. We need to do more in building that relationship in the grassroots level. Uh, and therefore, we call for the twinning, twinning of the mosque. We did twinning of the synagogue, mosque and the synagogue. But we did the twinning of the mosque, the Sunni and Shia mosque, where really can exchange imams and have the imams give the speech here, and give the sermon, and so forth in both mosques, so that it, this issue of whether they're Muslim or not, it not be in anyone's mind, whether the Shia or the Sunni. I would like to say for interfaith work also, we see a change now in the Muslim world. Many interfaith centers have been established, one in, by Saudis, Qataris, Turkey, and others. All of them have promoting interfaith work, Jordan, uh, which is a shift. We see the increase, uh, there's increase of need of the interfaith work. Uh, for interfaith work, uh, the Oman message meant to address that, uh, uh, the, the conflict and the, the, called the takfiri uh, ideology, calling person uh, not a Muslim because of disagreement in how they uh, interpret Islam. But I, I would like to end here so that I'm, the, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an imam and I can give you a sermon before I, I don't want to do that, I'll have this uh, dialogue, uh, that uh, uh, we need to uh, look into this information to see what's taking place on the ground and what are the factors that cause violent extremism. It's not ideological only. There's a political issue, there's a psychological issue, there's a mental health issues. I've been counseling young people in, in this country who uh, really become attracted to ISIS ideology. Some of you people even have joined ISIS and now they're in jail. Uh, I'm talking to them. It is more than uh, just uh, religious uh, interpretation of Islam. There's other factors in there. Thank you very much. Better. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, you know, there are many myths about uh, ISIS and its propaganda, and it's certainly true that radicalization is occurring through social media. 
but social media in the end is a lens that reflects a perceived physical reality. And it's important to note that ISIS media price prowess did not emerge overnight. Al-Qaeda in Iraq changed its name to the Islamic State in 2006. It almost declared a caliphate in 2008, was almost destroyed or decapitated in 2010. The first Western Al-Qaeda female suicide bomber went to Iraq in 2005. And um, the Islamic State's now notorious model, Al-Dawla al-Islamiyya Baqiya wa Tatamaddad, is a decade old. Um, so these are roots that go back. But if you look at ISIS videos in 2011, 2012, they're light years behind what you see today in terms of both quality and focus. Not only were they less technically accomplished, their focus was overwhelmingly internal. They were Iraq-focused. <coughs> they were domestic. They were about corruption in Iraq. They were about injustice in Iraq. They were about violence committed by the central government against Sunni Arab Muslims. Even though, say, for example, Zarqawi had mentioned Dabik and other things a decade before, there was no ap apocalyptic language. That happens later. What happens? In 2013, three key elements happen which qualitatively change ISIS messaging. Number one, the move into Syria, both in physical Syria and virtual Syria. And I'll get to what I mean by that. The move into Twitter. Uh, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS eventually split. There was the Al-Qaeda way of doing things, which valued trust and control. Mm. Trust and control, which meant the importance of password-protected sites. If you want to join a password-protected site, I needed to know that you were who you say you were, and I would allow you to join. I didn't want any strange people joining. This became, over time, an inhospitable environment for ISIS, for the Islamic State. And they made a virtue out of necessity in making the jump to that most promiscuous of social media, Twitter. Uh, the third element was English. Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula, Shabab had pioneered the use of English, but it was more occasional. It's ISIS that basically became, you know, focused on English and then other languages as well as a kind of a daily thing. It's remarkable to think that only yesterday, ISIS released a video in, in Uyghur, uh, in Ashid in Uyghur, uh, to basically target the people of eastern Turkestan, mm -hmm. of Xinjiang province in, in China. So, Syria was the first social media war. So Syria provided this space where there was experience and venue for ISIS to make this qualitative jump in its media outreach. Now, all these three factors continue to be important. Uh, and they've been coupled, obviously, by a fourth event, which are the dramatic events that happened in June of 2014 with the fall of a large part of Iraq in, into the hands of ISIS, and the declaration of the caliphate. The caliphate restored theme about the dawn of a new, fresh, utopian state has even now eclipsed the conflict in Syria as a powerful tool for mo mobilization. The ISIS media network is always on. They're like 7-Eleven. They're always mm -hmm. open whether from the organization itself or through its network of supporters. Their media apparatus has a dynamic strategy, and they're constantly looking to improve the quality of production. There's a feedback process that leads to the evolution of production and strategy. While we don't know exactly all of the masterminds, there's no doubt that a lot of Westerners or Western-trained people are involved. Each ISIS studio has their own staff, and they compete with each mm. other to do better. 
the ISIS media functions with a logic, you could say, almost of, of either news organizations, and we have some people who are from the media here, or from Hollywood, which is to top previous productions to increase effects and to generally enhance viewer experience. It's like Fast and Furious 7. You know, you want to do better than the last one. The main studios, Al-Furqan in Arabic and Al-Hayat in, in, in Western languages, have bigger budgets and means, but you see the states, Al-Wilayat, specialize in doing you know, particular items particularly well. So for example, some of the most grotesque violence has come out of Mosul, Wilayat Mosul, and some of the more kind of touchy-feely kind of compassionate stuff has come out of Wilayat Al-Khair, uh, which is Derizor. Um, they take time, and they've developed over time a process, a long pre-production process with th using many cameras, which using sophisticated media. You see their material constantly improving. And they have a huge quantity of data constantly growing, coming in from field media operatives, and they have enormous archives of images. Music and sound design is really important for them, which is remarkable considering that music is forbidden mm. for them. But they, uh, they have a music department, which of course specializes in anashid. You know, anashid being a you know, song sung by a male chorus with no musical instruments. Um, individuals such as the former German rapper Deso Dog, uh, who raps uh, for ISIS in German and in, in Arabic, are involved, and these often have English or Arabic subtitles. And you can find ISIS musical material right online embedded in non-jihadist Islamist channels. I was going to play one for you, but I don't, won't do that for you. But, but I actually went, I went to see how long it would take me. I went moments before we started. I went online, went on YouTube, entered some words, and within seconds I had an ISIS nasheed, which had half a million views, embedded within an environment of other nasheed, which were not necessarily jihadists. They were Islamists, they were Salafis, but they were not ISIS produced. And by the way, these, these music videos I'm talking about are not produced by a fan <coughs> or a supporter. This is official propaganda of the Islamic State. In fact, in some of, the video, uh, some of the music, you can hear the sound of gunfire because, of course, that's the original soundtrack from the, from the battle footage of, of the video. So while ISIS production have been designed with a target audience in mind, they tailor their message for a specific audience. They try to have visual codes that will be universal and appealing. There's basically two main objectives for the audience, fear for the enemy and awe for supporters and recruits. There's this wonderful phrase in Arabic, haybat al-dawla, the awe and prestige of the state. Also, fear of the state is implicit in that term. And ISIS is all about Haybat al-Dawla, Haybat al-Dawla al-Islamiyya. Um, in some of my um, uh, media uh, appearances, I've compared ISIS to kind of a pufferfish. You know, pufferfish blows itself up to make itself look larger than it, than it actually is and more menacing than it actually is. And it does that with its, uh, with its propaganda. Again, despite the Western media coverage, most ISIS propaganda is not particularly gruesome. That material is a small but significant part of what they do designed to provoke uh, reactions in the West. So to this impressive internal media operation, ISIS adds as a cutting edge jihadist counterculture. This is really important. It's a virtual counterculture. That's why appeals to authority are so mistaken. The idea, which I found when I was in the US government 
low only months ago, the idea that if we only got some imam, if we only got some old guy with a beard, if we trotted him out, all our problems would be solved because his mouth would open and ISIS would come out with its hands up. This is not the way it works. As, as we all know, there's been in the region and maybe in the world something which is called the democratization of religious knowledge. Just like those of us who are in social media, everyone's an expert. Everyone knows and has an opinion about everything. It kind of also happens with religion. That everyone's an expert, everyone's an imam, and says, no, this is what it says. This is what you have to do. Um, so ISIS has created, using this kind of jihadist counterculture, a large network of online supporters. And volume matters. In 2012, ISIS had about 2,000, had established about 2,000 accounts on Twitter. In 2014, they were establishing 11,000 accounts a year. Almost 1,000 of those accounts that had location metadata uh, um, embedded were in Saudi Arabia. Now, some of those accounts were very lightly used and were shut down by social media companies. But generally, we can say that pro-ISIS accounts on Twitter peaked in late 2014 with about 50,000 accounts on Twitter. The number today is slightly less, but it's still in the high 40,000, something like that. Of that amount, 2,000 accounts do the bulk of the work. To give you a sense of scale, if you take all of the accounts on Twitter, not just the US government, not just the State Department operation, which I headed, and you put all those accounts that are active on Twitter against ISIS together, you will come out at most with about 200 accounts on Twitter. So on our best day, we were outnumbered by ISIS by 10 to 1. And sometimes it's much worse. One uh, anecdote about my uh, previous job in the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications. Last year, we experimented. We did something which is known in social media circles as jumping a hashtag. And we jumped an ISIS hashtag to kind of ruin their day. This was a hashtag which was hashtag calamity will befall the US. I think it was in July of last year. We began early on. I canceled everyone's leave. Everyone got to work early and began tweeting and began messaging, putting stuff on. By the end of the day, we had done our best. We had fought the good fight. And we put up close to 1,000 messages. There were 100,000 messages on that hashtag. So we were outnumbered 99 Jeez. to 1. Uh, so 10 to 1 actually would be an improvement. Um, as I said, the key part of the ISIS messaging and recruitment in 2013-14 was Syria. And this is important. All too often, we're confused, and we talk about the slickness or the professionalness of ISIS propaganda. But the power of its messaging, especially in those years, was about something which is true about the sectarian carnage in Syria. There's no good answer. There was no good answer by communicators to the thing. The, the Sunni Arab Muslims are being slaughtered by Assad. And something to, needed to be done. There's an emergency happening. Mm -hmm. You, the Muslim in Western Europe, you, the Muslim in America, your brothers are being killed right now, and you have to do something right now. Now is the time to act. Western governments, uh, uh, Muslim organizations, charity groups had no really good answer for that. Mm -hmm. um, so jihadist groups offered righteous, religiously sanctioned violence against an evil force. And the fact that ISIS was the grimmest, most extreme, 
and noisiest of all the jihadist groups made them more attractive, not less so. In other words, their extremism, their violence, their, their implacability made them more attractive, not less so. Um, this is a problem for us and continues to be. The problem is that a large part or a significant part of the ISIS message at that time was a message which was at least partially true. So they constructed a message which dealt with an actual crisis in Syria, an opportunity for individual agency by young people looking for identity, a seemingly austere and implacable persona as the avenging angel of Islam, and utopianism as a powerful propaganda cocktail. It's not one message that they send, but several affecting messages affecting both the worst and the very best in human beings in a success successful effort to provide what Thomas Hegghammer called the cultural emotional dimension of radicalization. It's not about the facts. It's about feelings. It's about your impression. It's about that process of belonging. This vision of belonging is really important when we observe how ISIS recruits. There's no one road to extremism. Uh, but if we could make a generalization, there's usually a personal dimension. People absorb media, and then there's something else which happens. A neighbor, a friend, an imam, or through remote intimacy, somebody that you talk to in social media, somebody that you're Skyping with, somebody that you're talking with. Governments can't do that by themselves, and that's a real challenge in how do you replicate an anti-jihadist personalized intervention. Uh, how do you reach out to these clusters of troubled individuals or individuals who are searching? Finally, I would just say in closing that I think we need to have, when we talk about this issue, we need to have some humility and patience in what we're trying to do. The correlation of forces which led to the rise of ISIS to its resonating particularly in this moment have decades-long roots in the tectonic forces moving the region. We need to message more aggressively, smartly, and massively but the problem is one of politics, of struggling governance, and of the crisis of authority that exists in the region, and especially in the Sunni Arab Muslim world. This is then reflected in the media space and not the other way around. Thank you. Terrific. <clears throat> These have been three terrific presentations, and they really have given us uh, a lot to think about, a lot to talk about. Um, if Haider is still up in Tehran, um, and if we can get him on the screen, let us turn to uh, Haider Alkoy. Uh, clearly. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking the Atlantic Council for inviting me to speak today. It's a privilege to be on this distinguished panel. And I think it's really great that the Middle East Strategy uh, Task Force is engaging with voices from the region. Uh, to bring the conversations people are having here uh, into the policy debate uh, in D.C. Um, I think when it comes to the role of religion in politics, uh, we have a problem of definition we need to deal with first. I mean, what is religion? Uh, what is politics? Uh, if religion is a set of values, beliefs, uh, identity, a way of life, and if politics is the conflict for power, governance, and authority, then undoubtedly religion plays a key role and is a driver uh, in the regional turmoil we are currently uh, going through. I think it's important to understand religion doesn't just play a role in the day-to-day -day politics of the Middle East, but also in the day-to-day -day, uh, lives 
of the majority of Middle Easterners. Um, and if religion wasn't such a powerful driver of conflict in the Middle East, then it wouldn't be instrumentalized uh, by so many across the board. Um, and we should note that uh, religion can be both a constructive and a uh, destructive uh, force. And as Secretary Albright mentioned in her introduction, religion is a powerful force either way. Uh, but the result uh, depends on how and what it inspires people to do in the name of uh, religion. I think the other problem we have when discussing uh, this issue is that the line between religion and politics is often blurred uh, or invisible. I mean, wh where does uh, religion end and politics begin? And you can take your pick, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. You know, in many cases, religion is politics and politics is uh, religion. I think there's also an intellectual problem uh, many in the West uh, face when it comes to understanding the role religion plays in, in, in the Middle East. And we hear this line trotted out all the time, that it's all politics and religion has nothing to do with it. And I think this argument is both nonsense and dangerous. I mean, it's nonsense because it simply isn't true. You know, when somebody straps themselves with explosives and walks into a mosque or market uh, to massacre civilians, uh, you know, believe it or not, they believe they're going to be immediately rewarded by God. They believe they are doing God's work and that they will be dining uh, with the Prophet. And of course, grievance uh, plays a role, as well as socioeconomic factors, you know, the lack of opportunities, uh, both perceived and real inequality. But we cannot ignore the deeply held and strong religious belief that underpins this type of terrorism. I think it's dangerous to deny uh, that religion plays a role, uh, because religious clerics and imams often use scriptures and teachings or interpret interpretations of Islam for destructive purposes. And if we believe that it's got nothing to do with religion, then policymakers miss a golden opportunity to use those very same tools and channels for more constructive uh, purposes. Uh, rather than debate what part of the conflict is religious and what part is uh, political, I think a good place to start when it comes to addressing the crises uh, in the Middle East is to explore how political leaders can work together with religious leaders to combat extremism. And there are positive examples uh, from the Middle East. I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, in Iraq, Ayatollah Sistani has consistently fought extremism and has saved the country from a lot of needless uh, bloodshed. And although he is the country's highest religious authority, he actually calls for a civil state in Iraq and not a religious state. And should stay away from executive roles in government and stick to learning, teaching, and spiritual guidance. In Oman, which is in the GCC, religious minorities have the freedom to worship without fear. Uh, Shias and Sunnis, as well as those of other faiths or no faith, they do live peacefully together. Uh, in Kuwait, another GCC country, despite the tragic uh, mosque bombing recently, Shias and Sunnis do have good relations with each other. Uh, in Egypt, too, we have seen the government recently put pressure on the religious establishment to moderate its curriculum uh, to combat extremism. The point I'm trying to make here is we can't simply import Western models uh, and try to uh, implement them overnight in the region. Um, there are positive examples from the region that can be helpful to the region when addressing today's uh, crises. And of course, when we talk about re uh, regional turmoil, the Saudi-Iranian rivalry, I think, plays a massive role in fueling the Sunni-Shia divide because they are political giants who often rely on Sunni and Shia allies to advance their foreign policies. Of course, it's not exclusively the case for either Saudi Arabia or Iran, but certainly their political conflict escalates the religious uh, conflict. Uh, having said that, I think we should recognize 
that the Shia world is a lot bigger than just Iran. And the Sunni world is a lot bigger than just Saudi Arabia. There is space for interfaith dialogue away from this politicized uh, conflict. Uh, the religious establishments in Egypt and Iraq, I think, can play a critical uh, role in this, uh, as can civil society organizations. I mean, it doesn't have to be elite, top-down uh, driven. Of course, that's important, but I think it's crucial to focus on grassroots initiatives and dialogue. As Niha's polling data shows us, knowledge of the other plays a key role in understanding and tolerating the other. And I think this dialogue is the responsibility of everyone in the region, uh, not just the governments or religious uh, establishments. I think we need to be more honest about the historical roots of sectarian violence. Many seem to think that Muslims were living peacefully for centuries until the 1979 revolution uh, in Iran or more recently the 2003 Iraq war. And here I'd like, you know, I, I beg to differ with Imam Muhammad. There clearly was sectarian conflict and violence under Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath party. Tens of thousands of Shias in the 70s were deported to Iran. Uh, Shia practices were banned. Uh, in the 90s, tens of thousands of Shia were buried in mass graves during the Intifada. You know, Saddam's tanks rolled into my hometown of Najaf with placards bearing the slogan, no more Shias after today. Uh, even before that, in the 80s, uh, dozens of Shia scholars were executed. Uh, Shia schools, Shia libraries, they were burnt to the ground or bulldozed. Um, so sectarianism in Islam is as old as Islam itself. And there have been horrific episodes of uh, violence. You know, take it right back to the 7th century, the 10th century, 16th centuries. Muslims have been shedding the blood of other Muslims. And I think we need to be more honest about this. Of course, the extreme version of, the extreme version of this argument is made by pundits on the other side of the debate to say that Muslims have been at each other's throats for 1400 years, ever since the death of Prophet Muhammad. And, you know, that's also not true. But I don't think we can ignore the episodes of sectarian conflict and violence and pretend uh, they never happened. Uh, I'd like to conclude with just two quick observations uh, regarding the data presented uh, by Niha. Number one, it was interesting to, to note that the polling showed that Shias are more likely than Sunnis to say suicide bombings uh, can be often or sometimes justified against civilian targets. When in fact, Shia militants don't employ suicide bombings against civilians. And here I'm not just talking about the Middle East, but across the world. 9-11, uh, 7-7, the Mumbai attack in India, the Bali attacks in Indonesia, the Boston Marathon bombing. None of these terrorist acts were committed by Shia militants. And secondly, it's also interesting to note uh, that the polling shows that whilst the majority, and you know, in many cases the overwhelming majority, of Sunnis believe that Shia are indeed Muslims. Um, it was sad to note that the majority of respondents in Malaysia and Indonesia either said, no, the Shia aren't Muslim, or they can't say if they are Muslim. And I say it's sad to see these particular statistics because these two states are often viewed uh, as models of democracy uh, and tolerance in, in, in the Muslim world. And I'll, I'll conclude with that. Thank you very much. Uh, another terrific presentation. Um, I know, Imam Majid, you have to go, and we have held you past your time. Uh, if you need to slip out, fine. If not, I will ask you a question before you go. Um, you have done, uh, in some ways, are on the front line of the ideological battle here that we're seeing and that we're talking about today. How do you approach the youths and the others that you that hold some of the more extreme opinions that uh, Neha 
pointed out. Um, what's effective, and to what extent does religion figure in their views, and to what extent does religion figure in your response to counter their views? Yes, before I respond to this question, I would like just to clarify a point I said earlier. I was referring to the Christian-Muslim relationship in Iraq, right. not Shia and Sunni relationship. I know Saddam have done tremendous uh, you know, damages to relationship between Shia and Sunni, and have done massacres. I'm talking about Christians-Muslim relationship. In Syria, for example, you have not. This recent event about uh, Christians being attacked in Syria is after this violence in Syria. Before that, as Syrians, how the, the Syrian Muslims, Sunnis, and, 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 and the Muslims and, and, and the Christians had the kind of, what kind of relationship they had. That, I'm talking about Christian-Muslim relationship. Understand. But let me uh, address this issue. I counsel some youth, uh, as you have, maybe you have seen in media, uh, who their, uh, their parents brought them to me because uh, some of them decided to join ISIS. And they were in the process going to Syria. Uh, I'm talking about 15, 16 years old, uh, teenagers. Uh, unfortunately, one of them ended up in jail. Um, you have heard the announcement that uh, from Whitbridge, Virginia here. Uh, the, the common things between all of them is that they were looking for purpose. Mm -hmm. They were looking for the, you know, platform to make a difference. And the uh, ISIS, as you said eloquently, have provided that for them with the concept of dignity, izzah, in Arabic, restoring the dignity. Um, the, uh, they created a, a kind of disconnect between them and their imams, the mistrust, and, uh, or the mosque, because all of them being recruited online. They created kind of uh, uh, disconnect between them and their parents. Don't listen to your parents. This, they disconnect them from uh, their uh, circle of friends. And therefore, they lost all that what you call social safety net. Yeah. And they become completely vulnerable. When I talked to them for one hour and two hours, ISIS talked to them for 12 hours. Uh, the reason this young man went to jail, after all the counseling, because ISIS never left him alone. And what I can do with him for two hours, ISIS undo it in one hour and a half. And for six hours and so forth, they are the ones who are very close to him. Uh, they know what time he goes to bed. They know what he, time he gets up in the morning. They know what he, uh, kind of food he likes. They know him more than I do. And they know more about him than his own parents. Therefore, they created this kind of virtual society and virtual community uh, of uh, the group that they have your back, the same way the gang uh, function in America. Yeah. Um, when, you got, when you get into it, you will become part of the family. Um, and this young man was able to convince a, a young man who is Shia and convert him to become Sunni. And then he sent him to Syria. The, the young man is in Syria now. And he drove him to the airport. Uh, he was in charge of the Twitter account of ISIS in the United States, 16 years old. Therefore, the, the problem here is that is not having an, an one imam to speak. You need virtual imam. And our response to this is the following. 
We created now three platforms. We think that maybe it will help. We created something called Muflihun, and it has an Arabic name intentionally, because if you have any other names, it will not have legitimacy. And Muflihun means those who are successful. Taken from the verse that join what is good and forbid what's evil, and you'll be among those who are successful. Now, this organization meant to deconstruct the ideology of, of, of ISIS. But you need to have an internet movement, which is last week, a young lady in our mosque with a group of young people establishes one true Islam. And if you go to the website, give $1 to defeat violence extremism ideology. What they want to do, they want to create an operation center where they actually this uh, information of deconstructing Dabir and I other ideological uh, you know, belief of ISIS and Qaeda and others can be communicated online, having many, many Twitter accounts. Mm -hmm. And then the third component is to need to create a platform where young person feel a sense of purpose. They created Muslim Compassionate Core. This also created by young people. Because they are the one who I ask them, what do you think could be the answer? It says Muslim Compassionate Core. Just like American Peace But it's faith-based. You teach people Islam and have them act upon it. And have them to involve them in America and abroad. Uh, because it cannot be uh, just one lecture or give one talk about ISIS or one fatwa. Fatwa does not help. It, it, is, it creates a, a response. What would that fatwa become educational programs, become program on the ground? It, it's just another declaration. Yeah, many fatwa have been issued on violent extremism, but it does not stop it. But it has to go beyond just issue of fatwa, because when issue of fatwa, we feel like we defended Islam. But we have not stopped violence extremism. Therefore, I do believe that it has to be a holistic approach. Have a social components, ideological components, internet, uh, uh, mental health. Three of them, the father is not involved in their life. Okay, uh, one of them now we reconnect with his father, and and his life changed because uh, you know have not talked to his father for 15 years uh, since he was a, a one year old, two years old. Have not seen his father. Therefore, that issue also very very important for us to uh, to address the issue. Final thing I would like to say. We need to be able to address the issue of political Islam. To be mm -hmm. honest with you, the issue of political Islam has to be addressed. Is the political Islam contributing to the factor or the lack of it or suppressing it caused the issues? That's a question I leave for you. <laughs> Thank you. It was Thank a you, terrific sir. answer. We appreciate your being here very much. And, may and, uh, I, and thank unless you, so you have much. to leave right this one, may I ask yeah. a, one quick question? Yes. It's a very important question. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I always ask anybody who I meet when they do interfaith work. Empirically, as a researcher, it is fascinating to me that there is such a strong correlation between knowledge and tolerance. Mm -hmm. uh, the same relationship exists between doing interfaith work or people who engage in interfaith work and tolerance. But as a researcher, it's also frustrating to me because I don't know the direction of that relationship. Is it that interfaith work inculcates or causes people to become tolerant, or is it that tolerant people seek interfaith mm. dialogue? Yeah, you have to create the environment. You have to create the conditions by which you created this kind of issue of understanding and tolerance. Like in our mosque, we do a lot of interfaith work, and we engage people in scouting, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, the largest programs in Virginia. That program, it might prevent young people from seeking 
to engage in such activities because they know that they are part of the larger society, they, they have a platform and those kind of things. The issue is that what happened to a young person who is not part of that movement, who want to seek Islam, who want to understand Islam, and want to do it online? He is not part of the interfaith dialogue. He's not part of the scouting and so forth. What are you going to do with that person? That is the issue. How you bring that person from being isolated to engage him in the, in the society? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry to keep you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, Haider, I'd like to ask you a question, uh, and I'd like you to sort of elaborate on some of the things you were talking about, particularly from the Shia perspective. We, uh, we often, I think, in the United States view sectarianism and religious extremism as a problem affecting the Sunni sphere of the Middle East. But how, uh, how worried and how much of an issue is it uh, in Iran, for example, among a large, uh, a, a, a large Shia population. Is it the same thing? You made the distinction between Sunni and Shia. Sunni do, extremists are, have become specialists in suicide bombers. Shia extremists have not resorted to that. So is, is there a difference in the Shia community? Is the view of sectarianism and re religious extremism somehow a different kind of problem than what we're seeing in the Sunni community? I think it's, it's, it's a matter of uh, interpretation. Um, no matter how you cut it, uh, Sunni, uh, radical uh, Sunni Islamism and jihadism is very different to radical Shia Islamism uh, and jihadism. And it's the interpretation of Islam that I think is going to be uh, the biggest challenge for, for the Sunni world itself. When you declare the other a non-Muslim, when you declare his property, his woman, his life uh, as you know, uh, open game, um, when, when you reach that level of religious uh, discourse that people use to justify uh, walking into mosques, walking into markets and blowing themselves up and killing uh, dozens of um, uh, innocent civilians, men, women and children, this discourse simply doesn't exist in the, in the Shia world. Now that's not to say the Shia world doesn't also have a problem or, or a debate between uh, you know, the, the moderate forces and extremist forces, but it is nothing like uh, the current violence we are seeing in, in, in Syria or, or Iraq. There is no uh, religious basis, the interpretation of Islam, no matter uh, how far you want to take it, won't allow you to commit the atrocities uh, that terrorists are committing uh, uh, across the world. And that's why I said it wasn't just uh, in the Middle East. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, let me ask one last question, and then we'll turn to the audience and Alberto, let me ask you if, if, um, if I can ask you to elaborate one other thing. Um, is in the re when you mounted this campaign, for example, to go after the hashtag and got, you know, out, outgunned uh, 100 to 1, um, was the response, was the religious discourse an element of the response you mounted? No, I mean, the U.S. government, uh, we've always been very careful in how you use the religious discourse. Uh, in other words, it's difficult for the U.S. government to tell a, any faith-based organization, you know, your religion says this, or this is not what the Quran says. We feel that we would lack credibility. Now, what you can do and what you find effective 
is quoting them back to themselves. So for example, a basic part, we've discussed it here, basic part of the ISIS discourse, right, is that Shia are not Muslims and others are to be killed. And so one of the most effective messages that we've used is, who is the ISIS target audience? It's Sunni, Arab, Muslims, especially in Syria and Iraq. So you show how ISIS kills Sunni, Arab, Muslims. Not Yazidis, not Christians, not Shia, not the killable categories, but their people. So for example, you would highlight things like there's a veteran jihadist in Syria named Abu Khalid al-Suri, sent by Zawahiri to Syria with Ahrar al-Sham. He was assassinated by ISIS. Uh, that's the kind of stuff you use. So you, you do use the religious discourse, but you can't make the argument yourself. You basically use their argument against them. But in terms, if religion does have something to do it with does. the extremists we see, yes, um, is in your view is the United States government handicapped because of the understandable restrictions they feel, uh, both you know, in terms of our tradition and also in terms of effectiveness? Well, Madam what Secretary has written very eloquent about this. I, I think that, and uh, Will McCants had an exchange recently with uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali. Um, uh, on the Brookings website on foreign affairs about this very issue, you know, reforming Islam, right. the U.S. should support reformers, and Will, who's a friend, basically said the U.S. is incapable of doing so. Yeah. I don't think the U.S. Inca is incapable of leaving the legal question, but the U.S. is not very good at it. It's clumsy at it. It's primitive at it. We need to find ways to have allies and partners and people that can do that. Because ISIS, if ISIS disappears tomorrow, they've already succeeded in one thing. They have succeeded in moving the needle in the sectarian discourse in a certain direction. I mean, something like jizya, the idea that non-Muslims have to pay a poll tax, something that was buried by the Sultan Caliph in 1855 with the Hati Humayun, ISIS has resurrected it. And you see it mentioned on Al Jazeera, and you see it mentioned by Nusra Front. So they have succeeded. Even if they fail tomorrow, they have succeeded in kind of further radicalizing the discourse, a discourse which was already quite radical. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And now we're going to get uh, a first question from the audience for you, uh, and then we're going to open it up more generally. We have about uh, 30 minutes. We're going to stop right at 8.30 sharp. Question for Neha, and then we'll open it up more generally to questions for the panel, please. Um, raise your hand. We will bring a microphone to you. Identify yourself and any organizational affiliation, and also identify who you would like to ask a question to. And hopefully, the first one will ask a question for Nea. And if not, I have my own list. Yeah. <laughs> Questions? Sir. Please stand if you would. Thank you. And we'll get a microphone over to you shortly. My name is Michael Albin. I'm an independent researcher. Uh, my question is for, was for Imam Muhammad, but he, since he's not here, I'll, 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 address, uh, I'll address it to anybody who wants to pick it up. Uh, the, question, the questionnaires, uh, the, the polling that was done, was uh, concerned Muslims, uh, different kinds of Muslims, and, and their views of one another, and outsiders, non-Muslims. But there's another group of people in the Middle East, and those are people 
not talking about necessarily ethnic or religious minorities, but there's a large group of people who we might call uh, secular minorities, people who really nowadays, in my observation, have no place to go. And I, I have talked to many friends from the region and here in the United States, and they are glad to be in the United States because they have no home anymore. They say, in my country, the expression is, in my country. But they don't have a country to go back to because they are neither one nor the other, neither Shia nor Sunni, neither extremist nor moderate. They're just uh, non-religious or, or secular. Thank you. So is your reference to more groups like Ahmadiyyas, et cetera, or are you talking more about people who are atheists? People who or would not be fasting or... today, for ah, example. I see, I see. That's a, that's a really interesting question. And I think the region of the world where we see greater levels of secularism, even among people who actually tell us that they're Muslim, is um, Central Asia and Southern and Eastern Europe. Uh, and in those places, people have no, tr no problem telling us, I'm a Muslim, but actually I eat pork and I don't fast, uh, but I'm still a Muslim, and I don't never pray, uh, but I'm still a Muslim. Uh, Russia, another place. Uh, Russia has a, has a Muslim minority. It's a fairly secular Muslim minority. So in that sense, uh, we are able to represent their views. And it's actually, uh, I would actually go as far as to say it's actually not a minority. Uh, it's a, actually a decent number of people in those regions. Can I just pick up on something? And I think the question is of identity these days. Uh, let me just say, and, and listening to the polling initially, my thought was uh, how much of this is political. I am going to Srebrenica uh, tomorrow. And the question is, there in the former Yugoslavia and in Bosnia, <clears throat> there was an incredible amount of intermarriage. And it was not only later that I think people, and people that have been to Sarajevo talk about being able to see mosques right. and synagogues <laughs> and uh, churches, and that it, as the fighting developed, then and the sense of nationalism coming, I believe, from the Serbs, then that created this kind of sense of the need to have a, one to be forced to have a Muslim identity. And then when people were killed for being Muslims, it did, in fact, enlarge the sense of identity. So for me, and it goes a little bit to your question, is we and more and more are being identified as something, <clears throat> whether it's in smaller and smaller groups. And those people that feel they've lost their country or don't know what to identify with, but I think this is one of our big issues at the moment, whether it's political, linguistic, uh, ethnic, uh, religious, is one of the big issues out there now that we have to deal with. Actually, we, d we find something very similar in Russia, where among younger people, we find uh, greater levels of religious commitment than among older people, among Russian Muslims. Uh, which is quite interesting. Everywhere else, it's the reverse. Usually, as you as you age, you get older, you become more religious. Russia, it's the opposite. Ambassador, Ambassador Bailey. Thank you very much, everybody. Another important and rich discussion. Thank you. I think, if I may, I would like to look at the problem in a different perspective. Uh, some of the issues in, the, in the, our region is more to do with culture than to do with religion. So hence, you may not find in Southeast Asia, because that's not a religious edict. It's more to do with culture and narrative, or being important. 
a basic assumption which I have to make is that globalization means, means people will be aware more of social injustice and others elsewhere much faster than they did before. That will stick with us. Another important fact to aware, be aware of is that damage has taken place in religious intolerance, for example, in our region, religious like Christianity, Yazidi, others. This is irreversible. So we have to go into a damage limitation mode situation, at least to, to save humanity from these instinct cultures and, and religious. That's an obligation on all. A key important point I'd like to make is if the view is if viewed, so the problem if it's viewed from culture perspective, then unfortunately, whatever grand ayatollahs or big imams and others make fatwas, it will become irrelevant. That's an issue which we, and unfortunately, some problems start with religious edicts and then moves into the cultural narrative. That's an, that becomes harder for us to change. So I would call that the issues be viewed from a multi-layers or multi-views rather than just a religious edict being made or not. We have new tools in globalization, whether it's Twitter and others, they are still in the immature phase. Until we, have, we go into a mature phase where people use it in the right usage, then unfortunately all these damages will take place. So we have to be aware as to what policies we have to address these issues and minimize their damage. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Sixth row back, thanks. Hi, um, if you can believe it, I'm one of two Aisha Chaudhary's in the room right now. <laughs> I'm a professor of gender and Islamic studies at the University of British Columbia, and I'm gonna be at Harvard next year as a Radcliffe Fellow. My question is for Neha. Thank you very much for the research you're doing. It's really fascinating. And my question is about the Muslims that you were asking the question to, um, are Shias Muslims? And the, especially the category of people who are saying, I don't know. And my response, like my initial impression of that was more in line, I think, with Heather's, which is much more pessimistic, which is to say that they, it's not that they had never heard of Shias, it's that they were uncomfortable saying that someone who claimed to be Muslim might not be a Muslim. Um, so if, could you tell us a little bit more about the kind of question you were asking them and the kinds of answers they were able to give and if you were able to document people saying, I don't know what a Shia is or if there was room for that or if that's interpretation. Thank you so much. Great question, and, uh, and actually, that, when Haider mentioned it, I, it actually suddenly occurred to me that, huh, there could be multiple interpretations of why people are saying that they don't know. Now, uh, the way the question was asked is, I'm going to read you the names of some groups. Please tell me if you think that these groups are Muslim or not. Uh, and it was actually what we call a list question, so we included Ahmadiyas in Indonesia. In fact, a group called Aliran Keperkayan was included. It's a small group uh, declared to be non-Muslim by the government of Indonesia. Several other groups were, were included in the list, including Sufis. Now. Um, why are people saying they can't say? Is that because they're uncomfortable saying no, or that they really don't know? Uh, there's another question we asked that could actually provide some clues so we could actually triangulate a little bit. Uh, we also ask people, what are you? you know, are you Sunni, are you Shia, or are you something else? We find that in Central Asia and in Indonesia and Malaysia, a lot of people don't actually give us a sectarian identity. They say they are just a Muslim, uh, and that's actually, a, a, we don't offer that as a response category. They volunteer it. We don't say, yeah, you're, Shia, you're just a Muslim. No, they tell us themselves. Or they say they don't know. Or they tell us, actually, I don't know what you're asking about. Uh, and that's actually very clear feedback I got um, when we were even testing the questionnaire in those countries, that people are kind of looking quizzically at, at the interviewer and saying, what are you asking me about? Uh, so that actually gave me some indication that perhaps when they're saying they can't say, um, 
it's possible that they've never heard of the group. Your interpretation is, is likely as well, uh, just that this other question is giving me a clue into how people are thinking about this issue. Very interesting. Yes, sir. My name is Mohammed Shina with The Voice of America. My question is to Secretary Albright. What role do you see for the public diplomacy and U.S. international broadcasts in countering both the hateful ideology of ISIS and the anti-Americanism that feeds terrorism against the homeland? Well, <clears throat> I, I believe in public diplomacy, and I think that one of the aspects of public diplomacy that makes it different from propaganda is that it is not just a message going one direction, but one where there's a dialogue and try to establish what it is people are thinking in where the broadcasts are going and then have a two-way aspect. I think that one of the issues is trying to figure out what the message is, uh, how it is tailored to the needs of what is going on in the country. But I definitely, one of the issues about public diplomacy is where does it belong? The question is how does it operate in the State Department? How does it work with the Voice of America? That is one of our kind of uh, bureaucratic issues, I think. And in terms of how it fits in with whatever the regional issue is, because as you pointed out, it's different, whether it's in Central Asia or um, Southeast Asia, or whether it's in the Middle East. But I do think it has a very important role. I'm going to come back, if I can, following up on that. And may I ask you a question? And it requires you to step out of your researcher data analyst role uh, and respond to a consequence or two possible consequences of your data and see whether you think this is right. If I read it right, one possible consequence would be that governments that make a conscious effort to be more inclusive of a variety of ethnic and religious minorities, that that could have an impact on reducing sectarianism. That's the first question. And then the second one is parallel to that. Could a conscious campaign, again, I'm not talking necessarily government, could a conscious campaign to promote understanding, tolerance, and respect for basic humanity of people, could that, does your data suggest, have an impact in cooling some of the religious fervor and religious passions that may be an element of and this And could I just add to that whether the question then is whether the Voice of America actually delivers that second part of the message, which is not about a religion, but in terms of how human beings treat Should each relate other. to one another. All right, um, let's try to step out of data. How but, good. <laughs> but actually, um, your first question is actually an empirical question. It's testable. Uh, and uh, fortunately, we actually have data on it. <laughs> and and the answer is? <laughs> All right. Let's, let's answer it. Uh, so one project we do at uh, the Pew Religion Unit where I work is we uh, have an index of government restrictions on religion. So any time a government takes an action to restrict religious freedom, we actually code it. Um, and then we do this uh, over multiple years, and we do it in every country around the world. Uh, we use multiple sources, data sources, to come up with and then an index number of how high is the level of government restriction on religion. So uh, currently, countries like Egypt are very high on that scale. Uh, Pakistan is very high on that scale. Um, we also, as a sort of corollary to that project, also code instances of social hostility involving religion, any kind of violence, skirmish, et cetera, that has a religious component to it. 
And what we find is that there is a high level of correlation between governments restricting religious, re religious freedom and social hostilities involving religion. So countries where restrictions are high, social hostility is also high. And the inverse is true as well. Where restriction is low, social hostilities are actually quite low. And the question I would ask you is on that is the one you actually asked before. <clears throat> What's the causation there? Is that because there is religious hostility that you have the restrictions, or is it the restrictions that are in fact producing the religious tension? That's, again, a fascinating question. And we can do some um, analysis over time to see uh, what the nature of that relationship is. Uh, now, there are uh, governments in the world that will constantly say that the reason we are restricting religious liberty so much is because um, we would have kind of an all-out religious uh, riot if we didn't. Um, and actually, what we find in the data is that that kind of relationship is just doesn't exist, right? So social hostility seems to be going up in the countries that are restricting religion. If we could, and I'm going to put this really to Steve and Jessica I th and, and Janice, I think if we could get a look at that data and you could share that with us, uh, it would be very interesting because it, you know, we are burdened in this study to sort of make policy consequences and policy recommendations. And it seems to me if that data is right, it, it gives you a real policy advice that you would give to countries uh, in terms of of damping down uh, the the uh, the religious fervor, if you will, uh, which you're actually creating by the very legislation that is supposedly to prevent religious clashes. So, if that data could be shared with us, that would be terrific. Absolutely. There is a point that was made was that when Egypt outlawed the Muslim Brotherhood, it actually created more uh, attraction to it by some and the right. Right, exactly right. Your and did, second question, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask you to come no, to the second yes, your second, you. your second question. Um, I am personally very interested in views of tolerance. So I study this all the time, and I keep running numbers over and over again just to see what, what I come up with. Uh, one analysis I did uh, showed that all else being equal, uh, and so again, I'm talking now in terms of aggression analysis, most, in, in the Muslim world, among Muslims only, uh, People who use the internet or had internet access seem to have more sort of open views towards the West. Uh, and so to me, this was a very surprising result. And I wondered, well, could it be related to education? Could it be related to other factors? So I held all of those equal. And the internet seemed to still be associated uh, with more tolerant views, openness towards Western culture. Then I got kind of interested, and I started looking at many other factors. So I started looking at views of Christianity. I started looking at views toward other Muslim groups. And what I found were differential effects. So views towards Western culture seemed to be most strongly correlated with internet use. Views of Christianity, there was a moderate effect, but it was still discernible. When it came to views of other Muslim groups or within Islam or pluralism within Islam, hardly any effect at all. So in response to your question, uh, a campaign, um, you know, it, a lot of that, you know, as you were talking about, is done on the internet. What we find is empirically, the internet, uh, internet use seems to have differential uh, effects based on the topic that we're talking Interesting. about. I think it would be useful if we could look at that data as well. I think it would uh, provide a basis for, for further analysis. Other questions for the panel? We've got a group now. Yes, ma'am. 
Hi, my name is Renee Slosky. I actually work here at the Atlantic Council as an intern in the Eurasia Center. I have a question for Ambassador Fernandez um, about the presence of ISIS online. Uh, you talked a lot about its strengths, but a lot of people point to some vulnerabilities that it has as well. Sometimes things like phantom groups that kind of lessen ISIS's message, um, conspiracies being spread through the same channels that ISIS uses, and maybe sometimes going too far beyond the Islamic State as far as its reach. You mentioned into Uyghur territories such like this. I was wondering to what extent have you seen this activity and do you think it's really effective? And kind of a second question, um, social media, they've moved now to social media as their main way of getting out their uh, messages, but that also opens them up to questioning in some instances. And I know ISIS, it's a bases a lot of its power on the feeling of connection that it has with its people. So by not answering tough questions, does that also lessen their their image? And how to what extent have you seen this in your... Uh, well, I mean, there are, there are things you see online which could be, uh, you know, false flag or, you know, intelligence agencies or all kinds of funny business uh, affecting them. But, but it, 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 there's not a lot of volume. They still have the, the horses. They have the numbers. Um, and so those things are basically pinpricks that you see. Um, it, it's not really that, that significant. Um, it, it, their messaging continues to be socially media-based. Like I said, it's a positive message. That's a problem. It's, you know, we, we see the horrors of what they do, and we're, we're, of course, repulsed by it. But most of the stuff they put out, if you're a conservative Salafi Muslim, um, you know, what they're presenting is not an unattractive option. If you're a Sunni Arab Salafi Muslim, the, you're presenting something which is more or less acceptable, especially if the alternatives are some kind of sectarian Shia vengeance, you know, the types of things that they play up, or the Assad regime, or something like that. It becomes the default position. So the ISIS position, which we see as extreme, and it is extreme, seems almost reasonable for millions of people. And that's a problem. Interesting. Before we go to the next question, I, Haider, I want to give you a chance to weigh in and comment on anything you've heard here uh, before we go to the next question. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Stephen. I just uh, wanted to comment. I didn't quite uh, hear the question about culture uh, and religion, uh, but I just wanted to ask some uh, questions. I mean, ISIS have fighters from dozens of different countries from across the continents. So whilst culture certainly plays a role, um, what culture unites them? I mean, what language unites them? What race unites them? But what religion unites them? And more specifically, what particular interpretation of Islam uh, unites them. And when I mention religion, I, it, it doesn't necessarily follow that I mean Shia Sunni violence. I mean, in Libya, there are no Shia or very few Shia, but the Libyans suffer from the same violent extremism that plagues the rest of the region. In Egypt, there are very few Shia, and yet they also suffer from uh, this extremism. I, I just wanted to respond as well to the point about what the US can do. I mean, I agree with the ambassador that the US can't produce a counter narrative to ISIS. At the end of the day, this is a debate that Muslims need to have with each other. But what the U.S. can do is pressure its allies to do more, yes. particularly yes. since 9-11. The United States has allowed its allies to get away with murder, literally. I mean, the money that Saudi invests in the U.S. and the role that it plays <clears throat> to counter Iran in the region, I think has led many uh, in the U.S. to turn a blind eye to this destructive role that it plays, both its government and religious establishment. and. 
we need to be honest here, the disproportionate weight that Saudi and its religious establishment has had on the Islamic world has been a result of the political support uh, from the West. And it's this that has undermined uh, more mainstream uh, Sunni Islam. Uh, and I'll just conclude, when, when ISIS use Saudi textbooks for their schools, this should ring alarm bells in the West. I mean, Secretary Clinton in, in the WikiLeaks cable was clear that Saudi Arabia acts as a critical source of, of terrorist funding and indeed is the largest source of funds for Islamist group worldwide. So yes, the US can't produce the narrative, the, the counter narrative to ISIS, but it can do much more to counter ISIS. Alberto, do you want to comment yeah, on that? Yeah, I was just going to agree with him. If you go on, if you go home and go on, I don't recommend it, but if you go on the the uh, fatwa authority of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is in English and in Arabic, and you read what they believe how Christians should be treated, uh, it is exactly what ISIS says. It's basically jizya, uh, uh, death, or expulsion. Um, you know, there's absolutely no difference. As George Wallace said, there's maybe a dime's worth of difference between them. And that's a problem. It doesn't mean that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia doesn't fight terrorism. It does. But it's a house divided against itself. It both fights terrorism and propagates terrorism at the same time. Not the kingdom, but that environment is there pushing out this kind of poison. Other questions? Sir. Richard LeBaron, I'm a, uh, associated with the council. I'd like to pose a question to Hyder and sort of a, uh, ask him to re reflect a little bit. Um, terrorism, of course, presents a huge threat, but the biggest war in the Middle East with a million, maybe a million and a half victims was in recent history between Iran and Iraq. And in an atmosphere that you describe of intense sectarianism, I just wonder whether you think there's a threat that things could deteriorate. Uh, in that part of the world to the point where you would have a conflict that would dwarf the efforts of ISIS very quickly. Haider, do you want to take a crack at that? Could you hear Sorry, the I, 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 No, I, I, it, the, the biggest war was the Iraq-Iran war, but what's the biggest threat now was the question? No, the question is whether you think there's a threat of descending towards, or going down a a sectarian path which would lead to some sort of repeat of that war in the next several years or 20 years, say? I mean, I, 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 I can't see a repeat of, of the Iraq-Iran war uh, in particular, but what I can see, uh, unfortunately, is just more of the same. I mean, we have a 60-nation coalition now that's being led by the United States, but actually what's being done uh, to counter ISIS. I mean, when, when, when they lose territory in some places, they gain territory uh, in other places. So I, I, I can't see uh, a new threat. Perhaps if I want to be really pessimistic, I would say in, in the same way as ISIS um, undermined Al-Qaeda and came out with a more extreme interpretation of Salafi jihadism, you know, it's not outside the realms of possibility that another group will dwarf ISIS uh, when it comes to uh, violent Salafi jihadism. But really, the, th the threat is more of the same uh, and not enough being done really to tackle ISIS. And of course, when I say tackle ISIS, I don't just mean, you know, increasing the military uh, airstrikes. I mean, one of the fundamental problems is the education system, and not just in Saudi Arabia, by the way, but in a lot of the uh, Islamic world. It fundamentally needs to change because it produces and it readies 
civilians to be pushed over the edge by groups uh, such as ISIS. And here you don't need a 60-nation coalition to fly airstrikes. You just need uh, bold, brave politicians in the U.S. and, and, and in the West more generally uh, to push their allies uh, towards countering not ISIS, the military movement, but countering the ideology that underpins uh, ISIS. And this is going to be the threat that stays with us long after ISIS is gone. Even if you could magically kill every single ISIS member today, you're not going to eradicate this ideology. So, yeah, my greatest fear is another group comes along and, and replaces ISIS. We are down to our last uh, question um, because we do want to get out here. Because, uh, And so, sir, you back there, you have the last question. Thank you for the last question. Uh, my name is Yasser A lot of pressure Zayden. on you, a lot of pressure. <laughs> uh, my second question is to Mr. Haider. And uh, uh, I want to ask him about the Shia uh, being in an extremism violence, what we, what we have seen from the Assad regime. Actually, Assad regime is an Alawite Shia. So Shia has some violence and some violent extreme. I, I don't want yes. to be in, the, in this uh, river between the Sunnis and the Shia. How can the Muslims themselves go to the text and try, as, as, you, as you said, like there is um, bad interpretation, there is good interpretation. How could Muslims like, pave a way to find those good interpretation? My second question is to, to the panel. Who, who comes first, the, the radical mind or the radical text? And how can we, like, deal with those uh, either things. Thank you very much. Haidar, did you hear the question? I, I heard the question that was directed to me, yes, but not the second question. Good. We'll start you on the, the first, the, I mean, and we'll let okay. the panel deal I with mean, the second. On, on the Shia end of extremism, um, I, 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 would, uh, I wouldn't say Assad is Shia or his regime uh, is Shia. I don't consider him uh, as a Shia. And indeed, the, the atrocities that the Syrian regime has committed hasn't been in the name of Islam in the same way that Jabhat al-Nusra, Harar al-Sham, or ISIS have committed. It's in the name of his secular uh, dictatorship. Uh, and if you're expecting me to defend Assad, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to. I mean, uh, the Syrian regime itself played a vital role in turning a blind eye to the very same terrorists that it is fighting today. I mean, after 2003, and you know, no thanks to the rhetoric from the Bush administration that Syria was going to be next, uh, Assad facilitated uh, terrorists to, to, to go into Iraq and keep the, the Americans bogged down there. And, and you know, a, a lot of Shia ended up being killed as well. So you know, it wasn't a, a, a case of a Shia regime protecting Shia interests. It was very self-serving. Uh, and the Shia paid the price then and they're paying the price now in Iraq. And I'm not sure you want to try and take on the second question? Well, I mean, all belief systems have within them the roots of intolerance and uh, great humanity. And so that's true in, in the texts of Islam and in, in, in the, the practice. You can go back and find early examples of intolerance, early examples of extremism, you know, going back before Ibn Taymiyyah, going back to, you know, Al-Futuhat al-Islamiyyah, the beginning, uh, and you can find the opposite. So the question is, what do we do with that? And that's true, by the way, of belief systems that are religiously based and non-religiously based. I mean, the, the greatest mass murder in the 20th century was committed by belief systems that had nothing to do with religion. 
We've come to the end of our time. I would like you all, uh, one, I want to thank you all for coming at this late hour. I would like you to join me in thanking our panel. Uh, and then we will break and invite you out to the lobby for breaking of the fast and from uh, some words that we will get from Ayatollah Iravani. So um, thank you for coming. And join me, please, in thanking our panel both here and in Tehran. Thank you. Thank you.